Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. They're one of our most recognizable national symbols. But have you ever seen a bald eagle in the wild? Today where we live, we head out of the studio and into the field to see these birds of prey in their natural habitat, right here in our state. We'll take you along with us aboard a boat on the Lower Connecticut River and learn all about bald eagles' behavior and history. We have an eagle uh, in flight on the right-hand side, 3 o'clock, just over the tree line. Oh, you know what? There's two eagles over there now. We'll also learn about another fish-eating raptor that's thriving on our waters today. Eagles, ospreys, and more where we live, right after the news. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you counting the days until spring? Before we leave winter behind, we wanted to take you with us on a trip down the Connecticut River. For just a couple of months each winter, if you turn your attention to the skies, you can catch a magnificent sight, bald eagles. You can learn more about these raptors by visiting the Connecticut River Museum in the town of Essex. Coming up, we'll take you with us on Eagle Cruise aboard RiverQuest. The boat departs from the museum four days of the week in February and March. I headed down there with producer Carmen Baskoff last Friday, where we met the crew, including Bill Yule and Kathy Mallon. My name is Kathy Mallon, and I'm crew on RiverQuest. RiverQuest is an eco-tour boat that cruises on the Connecticut River. My name is Bill Yule. I'm an educator at the Connecticut River Museum. Uh, so, Bill, we're standing inside the Connecticut River Museum. Tell us how long uh, this museum has been in Essex. So, this has been a museum since 1982. This building's been here since 1878. And a lot of history in this town. Uh, but tell us about the role that this museum plays in fostering the idea that people can go out on the river, learn about the river, but also about the wildlife here. So our mission really is to connect people and the community to the river and to learn to value what they have in their own backyard, this beautiful habitat, this wildlife that we have right here, and we hope people will take ownership of the, of the river and the return of the river. We know the shoreline is a beautiful place to visit in the summer months. Uh, we're here in winter because of uh, unusual sight that uh, residents can see just for a couple of months. Tell us, tell us uh, what's out there that we're going to see today. Yeah, so we have a winter population that's unique here at the mouth of the Connecticut River. We have different populations of bald eagles in Connecticut. We have nesting mated pairs that are year-round residents. We have birds that are wintering here. They're on their, their winter vacation. They came from the north because the rivers and lakes froze up there. And now, this time of year, we have the first of the uh, northern migrants who wintered farther south, and now they're heading north towards their uh, breeding grounds. Uh, Kathy, you're one of the naturalists uh, that goes on the cruise with residents. Uh, tell us about the history of eagles along this part of the Connecticut River. 
Well, it wasn't so long ago that there were no eagles on the Connecticut River. Uh, the Connecticut River was polluted. Um, we were using DDT, which were getting into the food chain, making the shells of the eggs of these birds um, very weak, and they weren't hatching. So there was a point that we didn't have any eagles. Now we have lots of eagles in Connecticut. I think it was like 60 nests, and we hatched like... 63, I think it was, 63 last year. So the population's definitely coming back. When we talk about uh, the fact that the population has grown over the years, can we give us a little bit more of a timeline uh, of when we started to see the eagles come back? Well, they definitely started coming back um, when we passed the Clean Water Act in 1973. So that's pretty much one of the biggest things that, you know, allowed the habitat to start to recover. And once it started to recover, the birds started to recover, too. Uh, when we talk about the Clean Water Act, um, how dirty was the Connecticut River at one point? Yeah, so when I was a kid growing up, and I'm going to let you know how old I am now, in the 1950s, playing on the Connecticut River was really a dangerous thing because the river was seriously polluted and unhealthy. And then uh, throughout the 60s, it still was in that bad condition. And then in the 60s, attitudes changed towards rivers and the river health. 1969 Federal Water Pollution Control Act is what we now call the Clean Water Act. And since 1972, Kathy told you the last day in 1972 was the last day you could uh, use DDT in uh, North America, in the United States anyway. And then since 72, the river gradually got cleaner and cleaner over the decades. After 20 years, 1992, the Connecticut River was named one of the uh, 14 National Heritage Rivers in North America, which celebrates the fact that those rivers, 14 rivers in North America, cleaned up in the first 20 years of the Clean Water Act. Since you've been here for some time, Bill, when do you remember seeing uh, the eagles come back? So, uh, in my lifetime, there were not nesting eagles in Connecticut uh, between 1948 and 1992. 1992, the first pair of eagles nested in Connecticut, and then very slowly, eagles started to come back to the Connecticut River in the late 1990s. And then from the late 1990s until today, uh, gradually the population has increased at kind of a nice steady rate. Kathy, as we're out on the water, uh, tell us what you'll, how you'll be explaining uh, where to look for these eagles, where their nests may be, and what should we be looking for? Oh, there's lots to see out there. Um, I usually tell people the first thing you want to keep your eyes out for is a BBB, a big brown blob. Um, it takes five years for an eagle to develop that white head and white tail. So until then, there are different stages of mottled brown. So a lot of the times when you're looking in the trees, you'll just see a big brown blob. And if you look closer, you might realize it has bright orange um, talons. And then you realize that you're actually looking at an immature eagle. So while we're out there, we'll, we'll try to age some of them, figure out how old they are. Um, we know where so, some of the nests are, so we know where to look for the adults around the nest or on the nest. We have one that will be going by that they are incubating. So they, ha they have egg or eggs, so we're excited about that. And we have another couple just further north who are brand new. They're a young couple, and we are really crossing our fingers to and hoping that this couple will 
actually lay eggs. They built a nest and they established the territory. So we're hoping that we named them Bob and Helen. We're hoping that Bob and Helen will uh, actually produce some chicks this year. How common is it where the chicks, uh, you know, they don't hatch and they're not able uh, to survive? Um, it's pretty common. I mean, it's, it's, that's nature. Um, eagles have a mortality rate that the chicks that um, hatch, about half of them will make it through the first year. And in the second year, those ones that survive, only half of those will survive. So once they get past two years old, there's a good chance that they're going to make it to adulthood. So we'll be hopefully seeing Bob and Helen. Will we see them again next winter? Do these couples come back year after year? That couple happens to uh, live in the area. They're resident eagles, so they're pretty much here year-round. They spend a lot of time in their territory at their nest from about November through the nesting. And then once once they're done rearing their young and the the young fledge, they kind of take off and they spend time apart. They really, they don't need each other anymore, so they take a little vacation from each other. They'll go off and do their own thing, but they'll come and reconnect again in November. When um, we were talking about uh, seeing these eagles out on the river, uh, who are the people that come on these cruises? What brings them here besides the, the seeing the eagle? Are they birders? Are they just curious about eagles? Yeah, I think some of them are birders, some of them are photographers. Um, some of them are just people that are a little sick of being inside. You know, the winter doldrums have really gotten to them, and it's a great thing to do to get outside and come see what the river looks like in the winter because it's much different. And, Kathy, how long have you been doing this? Um, I've been working for River Quest for about 14 years. Do you remember the first time you saw a bald eagle? I do. You know, they're so majestic. That first time that you look at them, you, you almost feel patriotic, you know? <laughs> I live up in Suffield, and there is a farm that has a couple that comes and nests uh, each winter. And I think I saw one of them last year pretty low. I don't know if it was that particular couple, but flying uh, pretty low over my yard. And I just remember feeling awestruck. I almost couldn't breathe when I, when I saw this eagle. What is it about them that makes people um, feel that way, Kathy? Well, I think because it is our national symbol and because they're just so big they make flying look so easy you know they're they seem to be big powerful yet graceful uh bill uh what other um i guess characteristics of eagles will be learning about today other uh, behaviors so hopefully we'll see uh eagles in the air and what we like to see is interactions among adults and juveniles interactions among mated pairs They may fly together, they may fly at each other and uh, show off how well they can fly, how well they have uh, developed their skills, uh, their aerial skills, and that's a sign of fitness and that helps them become attractive to find a mate. So we look for all those kinds of behaviors. The other behavior we hope to see is possibly feeding behavior. Uh, As we get nearer and nearer to nesting season, uh, the eagles are increasing their caloric intake, particularly the females. They're getting ready to lay eggs, and then once she lays eggs, uh, she won't be able to go out and fish for a little while. She'll have to depend on the male to bring fish when the male remembers to bring fish. And so we hope to see all of those things, interactions, flight behavior, uh, and feeding behaviors. And what are they feasting on here? 
So bald eagles are primarily what we call sea eagles. They belong to a large group of eagles called sea eagles. So the prey items have to do with water. So in order, they will eat fish, ducks, and gulls. And then opportunistically, they'll eat other things, a squirrel or a rabbit. But mostly their, uh, their, their prey base is all related to water animals. So we saw a group of ducks uh, just outside the River Museum. So they better watch their backs. They better watch out. That's right. And also when we think about juvenile eagles, so it's not uncommon to see them together. They're not as territorial as when they become adults. That's exactly right. And lately we've been seeing what we call a cohort of juveniles. It's a group of anywhere to six to ten uh, sub-adult eagles. They're hanging around together. They're flying together. They're uh, sort of wrestling in the playground, that kind of activity, but actually in the sky. And they're feeding together. So that's really fantastic for a lot of reasons. It tells us that breeding eagles are successful because we're seeing so many sub-adult eagles and we're telling us that this habitat is improved and healthy and that's why they're here in the wintertime. Kathy, uh, we're here again uh, at the end of February. You're just going to be out on the water a couple more weeks, so if people wanted to uh, book an eagle river cruise, uh, how much more time do they have? Uh, we'll be doing it till the 17th, so um, pretty much Wednesdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays until March 17th, and uh, here at the Connecticut River Museum in Essex, and then after that, we'll, the boat will come out of the water for a little while, and then um, in April, we'll do Osprey Eagle Cruises out of Haddam, so that'll be fun, too, because the Ospreys will be, be returning very soon, probably in a couple weeks, we'll start seeing Osprey. Kathy and Bill, thank you so much. We can't wait to, to go on board. We can't wait to have you on board. Thank you. That was Bill Yule and Kathy Mallon, part of the crew aboard RiverQuest. It's a boat that takes passengers on a winter wildlife eagle cruise. Coming up, we'll take you with us as we travel down the lower Connecticut River and spot eagles and other wildlife. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're taking you on a ride aboard RiverQuest. We heard earlier from Kathy Mallon and Bill Yule about why the eagles have returned to the Connecticut River. It's a conservation success story. It's pretty thrilling to see them with the help of binoculars because federal law forbids people from getting too close to protect the eagle nests of our national bird. We met back up with Bill Yule and the rest of the passengers inside the Connecticut River Museum before getting on a boat. Bill Yule gave us a brief introduction. And I want to get you out there on the river to experience what the river's like in the wintertime and sort of the unique perspective you get of the Connecticut River in the winter when no one else is out there. So we're the smart ones. We're going to go out there in the winter and be on the river. Uh, everybody else is staying home. They're warm and they're not the smart ones. This room is uh, an exhibit every winter that tells the story or the history of bald eagles and winter wildlife in Connecticut. Around the corner we have the history of sort of the fall and the rise of bald eagles as biological species, how they were almost extirpated, which is a fancy word for locally extinct. 
Since the reauthorization of the Clean Water Act in 1972, the river got cleaner and cleaner. That brought fish back, fish brought birds back, and all that brought the people back to the river. This beautiful illustration over here on the wall, done by the uh, Connecticut wildlife illustrator, Michael DiGiorgio, that describes all the wildlife you could see in this lower part of the Connecticut River through four seasons. If you look on the left, you're in the spring, early summer, and then as you go right, you get into winter. So on the right side, those are all things we could see today. Bald eagle, a herring gull, the great cormorant, greater blackback gull, harbor seal, common merganser, a fox or a coyote. All those things are possible today to see. When you look in the sky today, we have a nice sky for seeing the silhouettes of birds. So I had these cutouts made. That's the real silhouette, life-size model of an adult female bald eagle in Connecticut. Same wingspan as me, more than six and a half feet. Over there, turkey vulture. Turkey vulture has a similar profile. The wings are a little smaller. The head is much smaller than a bald eagle. And turkey vultures fly like this, with their wings in a V, and they tip back and forth in the wind. Bald eagles fly with straight, horizontal wings. So turkey vultures get pushed around by the wind. Bald eagles command the wind. That's how I remember that. And then finally, the greater black-backed gull, which is probably the biggest gull in the world. That's the silhouette right there. You could easily mistake it for an adult bald eagle because it has a white head and a white tail and a dark body. But look at the difference in wing shape. The gull has that narrow, crooked wing that comes to a point. The bald eagle has that great, big, broad, long wingspan. It's like a half a sheet of plywood. So I think I've talked enough today. I think it's time to get out there in the river. I'm going to open the door. You're going to meet Kathy. From the boathouse, Bill takes us down a short ramp to the boat RiverQuest, where we'll be on board for about two hours. Once we're seated on the stern, we meet the rest of the crew. First, Captain Mark Uknot talks to us through a microphone. All right. Good morning, good morning everybody. Um, we'll get underway in a few minutes. There's binoculars on board. You're more than welcome to grab those and use them. It's a brisk morning. The earlier morning snow has cleared up, but it's still a bit cloudy. Passengers can choose to sit on the deck or in the cabin. It's heated there with plenty of windows, so you don't miss anything other than frozen hands and feet. Producer Carmen Baskoff records from the stern while I head up to the bow with my microphone. We hear from naturalist Scott Gray as we're pulling away from the dock. So welcome to RiverQuest. My name is Scott. And uh, we'd like to introduce you to the magnificent Lower Connecticut River. We're going to talk a lot about that as we go up and down its shores. The four-member crew each holds a microphone from different vantage points. Bill and Scott are with me on the bow while Kathy walks around the stern and sometimes in the cabin. The captain was perched on top with the best view, of course. We hear him describe the geography of this part of the Connecticut River. On the right, you have two coves in Essex. Middle Cove and South Cove. Uh, both of those were uh, really big hotspots for shipbuilding in the 18th century, early 19th century. Scott Gray fills in the ecology. So this uh, lower stretch of the Connecticut River is what we refer to the um, stretch of the river from Middletown 
down to here and out to the, to Long Island Sound, and the uh, the river is tidal all the way up past Hartford, so definitely tidal reach here, and this is also the point where the saltwater influence is still coming in, uh, presenting itself down here. The RiverQuest team is most experienced spotting the eagles, but passengers on board are also armed with binoculars and are told to be on the lookout too. Here's Kathy Mallon. So while we're on this trip, I am going to ask for a volunteer to be our official clicker. The official clicker is responsible for counting all the eagles that we see today. Oh good, we have a volunteer. Binoculars are a must because the boat can't get too close to the eagles. As we move down the center of the river and away from the town of Essex, the crew talks about the signs of an eagle, like how to spot one in flight, or how to find an eagle nest about 300 feet away. Captain Mark Uknot and then Scott Gray share more about the bird's nesting habits. So that island on the right side, on it was an eagle's nest that would move from tree to tree over the many years it was there. Um, and the reason for that is they build onto the same nest year after year after year, and they get heavier and heavier, and sometimes they break the branch that they're on. So that happened three different times. The nest fell from the tree for the third time, and unfortunately they did lose both the babies that were in the nest. So the eagles that lived there decided they were done with island living, and they moved to the mainland, and that's where they're living now. And in the museum, I saw some of you guys um, playing around with that mock um, eagle nest apparatus. Pretty amazing. Very large. Generally, those nests are about six feet wide, can be eight feet tall. The largest nest that's ever been recorded that I'm aware of was 10 feet wide and 20 feet high. So you can imagine how that would, in fact, um, cause some stress on that uh, host tree and why they do sometimes break out. Some of the things under the nest uh, that they would discard after eating lots of fish bones, especially catfish, uh, slow-moving fish that they could catch in shallow waters, snake skins, turtle shells, very common turtle shells, also little mammal parts, rabbits, squirrels, etc. It's not long before we spot our first eagle. We swivel our bodies and binoculars as Kathy Mallon tells us where to look. We have an eagle uh, in flight on the right-hand side, 3 o'clock, just over the tree line. You see that big, right over the tree line. Now that's an immature. You notice it's all brown. Bill Yule told us earlier that it takes about five years for an eagle to get its trademark white head and tail. This juvenile eagle, through our lenses, is dark brown. So while he flies up ahead of us off the bow, watch uh how, how deep his wing strokes are. He's working pretty hard. When they're down low like that, they have to flap almost continuously. And then they can go into a glide. When they're up higher, they use rising warm air from the land to gain altitude. And there's been quite a few juvenile eagles in North Cove in Essex on our left the past week or so. As that eagle flies out of view, Scott Gray picks up and tells us about the unique ecology of the river. Later, you'll hear Bill Yule point out other wildlife along the way. And you got a really good view at the left at this point. You, you can see North Cove, a good example of one of our vast areas of freshwater tidal wetlands that make up a lot of the lower Connecticut River, which is an amazing resource that we're lucky to have a lot of down here. 
um, freshwater tidal wetlands are the most productive bioregion, if you will, on the planet. Scott, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you because we have four red-breasted mergansers flying behind us. Yeah, red-breasted merganser are one of three merganser species we have on the river, and they're really cool diving ducks that are here mostly in the wintertime. Have you seen mergansers before? They're large ducks with green heads and red bills. Oh, you know what? There's two eagles over there now. Yeah. Right over the, the shrub. So just the, to the right of that the now, you'll see that there are two in flight. And when you see two, there's a good chance that maybe we'll see some interaction. So when they fly like that uh, and they're cruising over an area like North Cove, that bird is actively hunting food. Looking for a fish, that bird doesn't care if it's a live or a dead fish. The easy meal is the best meal in the wintertime. If you're on this stern, you got a good look at that eagle right now at 9 o'clock from your point of view. You're listening to Where We Live as we take you with us as we travel down the lower Connecticut River to spot eagles. It's peak season to see eagles nesting. They include migrating and resident eagles. RiverQuest departs from the Connecticut River Museum in the town of Essex in February and March. Passengers armed with binoculars or really big camera lenses can see eagles up close. North America, we have two subspecies of wild eagles. Uh, these are northern uh, wild eagles that we have here in Connecticut. Uh, really big, long, fancy three-part name. Uh, Hylaeetus leucocephalus washingtonianus uh, is our subspecies here in the north. And then in the south is the nominate species, and they're a little bit smaller. Is there going to be a test? But bald eagles aren't the only wildlife you'll get a chance to see. There's a seal right behind us. Sticking his nose out of the water. Oh, All right, 7 o'clock, see his nose right here. Yeah. 7, 8 oh. He's smiling. <laughs> see, I told you things happen fast out here. Good eye, Bill. And he's still at... Uh, oh, he's still there. Oh, Look at him. Oh. He went under. Now the reason that seal is in this area right here is because of all the fish, the fish. underneath us. Naturalist Kathy Mallon points out other bird activity. Yep, so you see, some people are noticing up at like 2 o'clock that there's a really large nest up there on the top of the tree line. That's actually, we're pretty sure, an osprey nest. Although we have set, seen eagles at that nest, but that's not unusual. Eagles often along this stretch of the river uh, use osprey nests as picnic tables. So if they catch something, an osprey nest can be a great place, a nice little platform to eat your dinner. Coming up, we'll tell you more about ospreys, but on this cruise, the focus is on bald eagles and the natural history of the river. Here's Scott Gray and Captain Mark Uknot talking about the shoreline. A little uh, quaint little community on the right of the boat here is known as Brockway Landing, and I like to point out that this is the site of one of the earliest ferry crossings on the Lower Connecticut River, which had some of the earliest ferry crossings in the whole colonial beginning of our country. Uh, ferry crossings were popular spots because that's how you got across the river. No bridges were able to span large bodies of water back then, and oftentimes a community would pop up around the ferry crossing that happened here. It's all retained its colonial character. It's still beautiful today in that same aspect, Brockway Landing. Down the right at one o'clock, we got a good look at the mouth, the southern mouth of Selden Creek. Selden Creek is a beautiful body of water that undulates and flows around in a real calm manner. Back behind that big hill up ahead of us, 
comes back and greets the river north of here, creating Selden Island. And uh, we'll talk more about Selden Island as we cruise along its shores, but a really good view of Selden Creek right now at one o'clock or so. This is a wonderful area for osprey. It's also one of our larger areas of freshwater tidal wetlands. Besides spotting birds in flight or in trees, the naturalists point out other signs of eagle activity, and we learn more about other birds. You know, we're looking out on the right-hand side at 3 o'clock, and you'll see that there's a big osprey nest in the tree, and you'll notice a couple crows in there. Those crows are probably eating the remnants of what an eagle, that's a very popular eagle dining spot, so they tend to hang around eagles when they eat because as soon as they're done, it's their turn. So are, are they dumpster diving? They are dumpster diving. Can you tell what kind of uh, crows they are, Kathy? I can't tell what kind of crows there are. There are two kinds of crows in this area. There's the common crow, which you probably have heard out in your yard. It goes, caw, caw. There's also a fish crow. Looks exactly like the common crow. But it has a different call, so that's the only way you can tell them apart. And I personally can't do the call, but Captain Mark is multi-talented. He can not only navigate a boat, but he can do... There you go. While it's exciting to see the eagles in flight, the crew emphasizes how important it is when eagles are spotted building a nest. We heard earlier about one of their favorite pairs, and now we might actually get a chance to see this couple. They're resident, not migrating eagles. So we are now into Bob and Helen's territory. If anybody follows us on social media, they'll know. Bob and Helen is a young couple that spent all last summer and all last fall claiming this area as their territory. So when we saw them hanging out, we were really hopeful that they would uh, build a nest. From a distance, you can spot an eagle's nest by looking for a jumble of sticks about 100 feet up a tree. So as soon as all the leaves fell off the trees, I came down here to see if there was a nest. And sure enough, at that point, it was pretty small, but there was a nest being built. We now have seen them on the nest, around the nest, over the nest, but not yet incubating, but we're crossing our fingers. They got named Bob and Helen a couple Saturdays ago. The passengers on board decided to name them Bob and ha Helen. Uh, they're named after um, a wonderful couple that had worked for years at the uh, Connecticut River Museum and the day before they had retired. So in their retirement, they now have bald eagles that at least we call Bob and Helen. I was pretty proud of myself for helping spot the eagle through my binoculars. Of course, we're not sure if it was Bob or Helen. And when I saw the eagle, I told Bill Yule. And over the microphone, he announces to the other passengers which direction to look. And the adult eagle uh, flying south at 9 or 10 o'clock, right above the trees in the north end of Eustatia Island. He's going to land. He landed right now about 9 right. or 10 o'clock on one of the taller deciduous trees. Right, right over the nest. The nest. Yeah. <laughs> 10 yards from the nest. I wonder if there's one sitting in there. If you were watching the nest, a bird just, an uh, eagle just flew into the nest. All right. So 
So since we saw an eagle fly into that nest uh, just a minute ago, maybe it's a good time to talk about their breeding cycle, uh, which is now, and maybe running a little bit late this year because of the mild winter, but now is the time that bald eagles in lower Connecticut should be laying eggs, or at least getting ready to lay eggs. They usually lay two eggs, sometimes only one, sometimes three. If they lay three eggs, that's a sign that there's lots of available food. And uh, they sometimes call that third egg the insurance egg because there is a, a tendency with bald eagles for the oldest adult to outcompete the younger or youngest adults. Uh, they call that the Cain and Abel syndrome. And a lot of times the youngest bird doesn't survive because his siblings are so big and greedy and rough with them. So after uh, eagles lay their eggs, it takes about 35 or 36 days for the first egg to hatch. Eggs are laid a day or two days apart. And then they're in the nest being fed by the adults for 10 or 11 weeks. And then they finally get enough uh, confidence to fly. Uh, we call that fledging. And then they start flying around a little bit. And then the adults may feed them for an additional six to eight weeks, depending on uh, the individuals involved. And then pretty much after that, the eagles, the young eagles are on their own. They have to figure out how to survive. As the boat leaves Bob and Helen's nesting territory, the naturalists point out another bird that's common, the double-breasted cormorant. They're black birds with emerald eyes and a hooked beak. Kathy Mallon tells us more about these strange-looking birds. They can hold their breath up to three minutes, and they can dive anywhere between 50 and 75 feet. They have a special feather structure that holds water, so that's what keeps them from being too buoyant and allows them to dive down really deep, anywhere between 50 and 75 feet. But the problem is, is when they come out, they're soaking wet and they cannot fly so well. So what they do is they outstretch their wings and they literally hang them out to dry. So a lot of people, when they see them perch with their wings out, they call them Dracula birds. At this point of our cruise, we're now passing the towns of Lyme on our left and Deep River on our right. This is prime real estate today with multi-million dollar homes. Bill Yule points out these homes weren't here before 1980 when the Connecticut River was dirty with industrial pollution. He says by the 90s, the river got cleaner and people started building homes. Now, have you lost count of the eagles we've seen? We did too, but thank goodness there's an official clicker to keep track. We'll give you a final tally in just a few minutes. So if anybody is interested in trying to spot this very, very, very difficult nest that is going to be coming up on our left-hand side, what you want to do is you want to look out on the left-hand side. We're looking way in the backyard of this yellow house. You're going to look way in the back at the tallest white pine in the back. Yeah, that's a big nest. That is a very big... Oh, here's the other adult coming in. Carrying something. Carrying something. Oh, it looks oh, like it's, nesting it's like material. Hay. Grasses. Oh, that's really a good sign yeah. because that's the last part of nest building to bring some nice soft grass into the nest to hold the eggs. Another thing that uh, raptors will, a lot of birds bring into their nests at the end is lichens. 
and mosses. And they do that because not only are they soft and fuzzy and um, comfortable, but they also have antimicrobial. Oh, he just one of them just landed on the top, tippy tippy top of the spruce tree. Yeah, he dropped off nesting material, and then uh, the missus is doing a little home decorating, and now he's resting. So while you're able to study that adult bald eagle on the right at 2 o'clock now, notice the bright white head, bright white tail, chocolate brown body, and you can even see that he has a bright golden yellow beak. Now, there's no way the crew could have planned this. The view of this eagle was spectacular. The sun hit the eagle just right. Its white head so bright and its yellow talons hard to miss. Perched in a tree, watching us as we're watching it. It was the perfect ending to this river cruise. Here's Bill Yule. And uh, just want to say that uh, we're really happy to bring people out in the river so you can have this kind of experience that we had today. Part of what our mission is, is to get people out here and enjoy the river in wintertime, and I hope everybody had that experience today. So, thank you very much. After two hours, we disembark from RiverQuest and head back up the ramp to the Connecticut River Museum's boathouse. I caught up with Kathy Mallon to talk about what we saw. So, Kathy, first off, that was an awesome experience. Oh, glad you had fun. Can you give us the official tally of how many eagles did we actually see? I lost count. I know. Um, the official count from our official clicker was 17 individuals. So some of them we saw more than once because we went upriver, turned around, and came back. But we tried really hard not to double count them. And if my memory serves me right, did we see at least three couples? Yeah, I think we did. We definitely saw uh, the two nesting couples, and then we saw that other adult that belongs to the couple of the nest down here. So I think you're right. Is 17 individuals, is that uh, the average that you would see on an eagle cruise? You know, it's nature. You just never know what you're going to see. Um, you could see anywhere from maybe 8 to our record is 42 in one cruise. Uh, earlier you mentioned that this cruise happens in February and March. Uh, is there a particular week um, during that time where you might see more activity or it just depends? No, I can't predict it. <laughs> you just never, never know. Come March, like the middle of March, we're going to see some of those um, transient eagles kind of heading back. And then the adult eagles that we saw, one of them's always going to be on the nest. So that's why we kind of stop mid-March, is that by then, um, you know, the numbers are starting to thin, but they're still here. What we really want people to, to do is realize what's in their ver very own backyard. And we hope that if they see it, and they enjoy it, that they'll care about it and take care of it. We also caught up with some of our fellow passengers before they headed home. Some were looking at exhibits at the Connecticut River Museum. The first group was from Rocky Hill. My name is Maria Libreo. I'm the CEO for Rosehill Funeral Home in Rocky Hill. And as a bonding experience, we wanted to find something to do. And so I have our secretary, Kristen, and several of our funeral directors. We decided this would be a fun thing to do. It was awesome. I did not expect to quite see as many, and they were just right there. It was amazing. Tell me your name. Kristen Forte. I think it was just incredible. I mean, like, when I saw the size of the nest and one of the, when we were down the river, I just, that was incredible. I was like, the size, and he was saying that they keep rebuilding it every year, and being able to really see them up close was just an amazing experience. 
The RiverQuest Winter Eagle Wildlife Cruise wraps up in just a couple of weeks. You can learn more and see photos on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. After the break, Connecticut Audubon has a new report on another raptor success story. We'll learn more about the osprey count coming up. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Another bird of prey Connecticut residents can see along the shore is an osprey. Connecticut Audubon has released its annual report on ospreys, and the news is good. Just like eagles, the insecticide DDT impacted the state's osprey population in the 60s. But today, they've rebounded. To tell us more, joining me now in studio is Mylon Bull. He's Senior Director of Science and Conservation at Connecticut Audubon. Mylon, welcome to the show. Thanks. So we were just uh, learning about eagles, uh, seeing them up close on the lower Connecticut River. And we're curious about another raptor that has seen a resurgence through the years, and that's the osprey. Tell us about the actual bird, if people have never maybe seen this in the wild. The ospreys are sort of like the iconic uh, bird of Long Island Sound and our rivers and our estuaries. Ospreys are, are large raptors. Uh, Some people confuse them with bald eagles, but once you've seen a bald eagle, you'll never confuse it with an osprey. And uh, they're specifically fish-eating birds. They, and unlike gulls and some other shorebirds, uh, they only feed on fish that they catch themselves. And so you're never gonna see an osprey, you know, picking over dead fish at the side of the, at the seashore like gulls will. And they're plunge divers too, so they dive in, grab the fish, and carry it away. I mean, they're, they're spectacular birds, uh, very, very iconic birds of the uh, Connecticut shoreline. Can you describe what they look like? Okay, ospreys are large raptors. They've got about a six-foot wing spread. They're generally white underneath and dark above, and they have a, sort of a crook to their wings, uh, like almost a W shape when they're flying. Yeah. Um, so we were talking with B- Bill Yule from the Connecticut River Museum earlier about you know, some of the factors that led the eagles to return to the Connecticut River, uh, one being the water was much cleaner. When the water got cleaner, we saw more fish, and that brought uh, raptors back. But also when we think about DDT, a reminder about uh, what this uh, chemical really was and what it did to both eagles and ospreys. Yeah, DDT interfered with uh, the bird's ability to produce calcium when a lot of birds, not just raptors, but mostly raptors, when they laid eggs, which are calcium, uh, the eggshells were so thin that either they uh, broke when when the bird sat on them or sometimes they uh, laid eggs without shells at all. So we began to see only the adults and none of the juveniles. And then as the adults began to die off, the population crashed. From over a thousand birds that were here early down to a handful of birds nesting at the mouth of the Connecticut River on Great Island. When we um, again mentioned DDT, that was an insecticide? Yeah, that was an insecticide. It was widely used insecticide. It was touted to be the best, safest insecticide that we knew. I don't know if you remember, I remember people on TV eating it by the spoonfuls to show you how, how safe it was. 
So, uh, and now it's found everywhere from the Arctic to Antarctica in the, in the ice. Mm. It's still in mother's milk. When you were growing up, were you from Connecticut? I am. Mm-hmm. So when you were growing up, did your family see Osprey? Was this something that was rare at the time? Well, this is a story that I tell. This is, this is how I really got into birds at Audubon was my father was a sportsman and a, an avid fisherman. And when I was six years old, he had me down on the, on the Housatonic River in a rowboat actually fishing for flounders. And uh, as I'm sitting there shivering with my pole over the side of the boat, he said, Myron, look up, look at this bird. And I looked up and this white bird was flying by. And he said, you see that bird? I said, yeah. He said, that's an osprey. And he said, that bird will be extinct in your lifetime. When I got back home, I looked at my little Peterson guide, looked up ospreys, learned about them, started looking at all birds. And then uh, it just got crazy from there. It was really bad for the osprey and other birds in the 60s and 70s. So, again, uh, we saw DDT then get banned. But what else helped uh, these this wildlife uh, become strong again? Well, when DDT was banned, uh, there was a feeling that there were not enough areas or places for ospreys to nest. And so the public and the state uh, began putting up osprey nesting platforms, artificial platforms for ospreys to nest on. And the ospreys uh, began to come back slowly, but only uh, at the mouth of the Connecticut River and then further points to the east. It took a long time before the osprey population grew big enough to begin to move west. And so it wasn't until the late 80s, early 90s, that our first ospreys began to nest uh, on the western side of the Connecticut River, down as far as Milford. Mm. So conservationists uh, really helped uh, the bird come back. And they still are. Uh, when you are on the river today, are you really surprised to see how well they're doing? You know, it's conservation works. I mean, we've got over 70 active nests at the mouth of the Connecticut River now. And now uh, across the state, I think we've identified something like a 775 nests across the state. It's, it's a great conservation story. Many of us appreciate the beauty around us. Uh, we want to help um, nature uh, thrive. Uh, when we think about these counts that are through the Connecticut Audubon, you're really relying on citizen scientists to help you. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Uh, the state asked us if we would take over the osprey monitoring program that they had done since 1969. They've been monitoring the ospreys. We took it over uh, in 2014. So when we set up this program, this monitoring program, uh, we began to map uh, all the nests that we could find in Connecticut and assign volunteers to uh, monitor the nests. And that's going on today. So everybody wants to mo- wants their own osprey nest to monitor. There's uh, uh, three, four hundred volunteers that help us monitor osprey nests across the state every year. So remind us again, uh, when is the best time to be seeing these osprey uh, along the river? They should be coming back in about two weeks. And uh, first the males come back and they occupy their successful nest from last year, waiting for the females to come back. Females come back a few weeks later. And then um, they begin to build in April. And then by the middle of May, they're um, already incubating eggs. Uh, this is where we live. In studio with me is Mylon Bull, Senior Director of Science and Conservation at Connecticut Audubon. As we explore another success story along the Connecticut River, uh, the Osprey, and through the help of citizen science and the Connecticut Audubon, they've been tracking how well uh, Osprey have resurged in recent years. So from 2014 again, Mylon, to today, how big has the population rebounded? 
Well, in uh, 2014, we had about 210 active nests. And today, we've got about 416 active nests. There's about 725 total nests, but the excess are not active right now. Uh, do Is it anticipated that this will continue? I mean, what are some other factors in play where you could see uh, this either uh, flatten or decrease? Well, well, that's a great question because um, ospreys are really critical indicators of water quality. And so as the water quality improves and the fish diversity and abundance improves, the osprey population has increased. And so we're looking to see if and when the osprey population levels off, as it will at some point, and if it begins to decrease, we'll start looking at water quality issues first. Also, uh, since ospreys, at least along the coast, uh, focus mainly on Menhaden when the young are in, in active growth. Uh, we're also interested in protecting the biomass of Menhaden, that herring that the ospreys depend on. They're threatened by commercial fishing. Uh, for our listeners uh, who want to see osprey again, uh, this is a good time to check them out along the river. But what can they do uh, to help this population continue continue to grow, Mylan? Well. Uh, I think the best thing to do is to monitor the nest. If you see anything going wrong, like ospreys often get entangled, they'll bring rope, monofilament. We've had boots. Uh, we've seen rake handles. Uh, we had uh, an, a, a female osprey at Milford Point two years ago uh, bring back a little blue teddy bear, which she put in the nest and would rearrange every once in a while, <laughs> like furniture. So they bring all kinds of trash into the nest. Uh, and the the real problem is um, fishing line, monofilament, and rope. So if, if people are monitoring nests and they're cleaning the nest, they should get up there and, and try to take out uh, monofilament, rope, and other entanglement issues that the ospreys could face. And the problem is by the time the osprey is entangled, it's so hard, difficult to get out because a lot of them are nesting out on open marshes where it's difficult to reach the nest platforms that uh, – it's a rough case for osprey survival if they get tangled up in the in the fishing line. You rely on volunteers to track uh, these birds. Tell us how uh, our listeners can find out if they want to volunteer with the Connecticut Audubon, how to do it. Sure. If they go to our website, uh, ctaudubon.org, uh, you can click on uh, Osprey Nation, and that provides all the information on how to become a monitor. Uh, we've got an interactive map that will indicate where all the nests are and which ones we need to have monitored with uh, green and red pins. And then I do uh, training sessions around the state in uh, March and April to train monitors. All the information you need to know is right on our website. And in case you don't know what an osprey looks like, we're going to have photos up on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Mylon Bull, it was a pleasure to speak with you, Senior Director of Science and Conservation at Connecticut Audubon. Thanks for coming in. All right. Thanks for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. To learn more about the show, check out wmpr.org slash where we live. As always, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.